So you always want to be prepared to... To set goals. To be really disruptive. Diversity is fundamental. It is just trusting those super strengths. To recover from those failures and, and learn from them. Humility looks like the softest word, but it's kind of the hardest. We ourselves are in beta mode. Life goes on. Sporting Edge, inside the mind of champions. Welcome to the Inside the Mind of Champions podcast. My name is Jeremy Snape. I'm a former England cricketer with a master's degree in sports psychology. Since retiring, I've been fortunate to work with and interview some of the world's most successful thinkers and performers. And I'm passionate about translating their habits and routines into practical strategies to help you become more successful. In each episode, I'll be dissecting a common performance challenge to help you improve your mindset, your leadership and your team performance. To me, our mindset is the next frontier. So let's find out why. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Inside the Mind of Champions, where we're going to be exploring the provision of mental health support in the military and beyond. I'm always fascinated in learning from people across domains, because I think when we consider how we develop our mindset, our leadership or our teams, there are so many parallels across sport, business, the performing arts, military and academia. So that's the essence of Sporting Edge, really. We've created a digital platform which allows our clients to search for key business challenges and get immediate solutions from world-renowned experts in seconds so they can think and perform better. If you'd like to learn more, just visit sportingedge.com and you'll see how we could support you. So let's meet today's guest. Susie Hines qualified as a mental health nurse in 1988 and worked in the NHS before enlisting in the British Army in 1996. Over the last 27 years, she's managed and delivered clinical mental health services for the defence personnel and has worked in various overseas locations, including Bosnia, British Forces, Germany, and spent three years in Northern Ireland. While there, she completed a degree in specialist psychological interventions. In 2007, she was assigned to the Royal Centre of Defence Medicine. During this assignment, she developed and delivered psychological support and assessment services to patients and their families. And in 2018, she was promoted to Lieutenant Colonel and led mental health service delivery across the defence population. Susie's still serving and she's currently employed at the headquarters of the British Army. Her focus continues to be on mental health and well-being of the workforce and has a particular interest in the effects of executive stress and the prevention of burnout, which is just so relevant for all of us today. This was one of the regular mastermind sessions that we host as part of Sporting Edge's subscription service. Our SME and corporate clients were able to invite their leaders and managers to the sessions to get some inspiration from leading thinkers and performers. And they can also ask a few questions themselves. So let's jump straight into the session with Susie. Tell us a little bit about how you got into this career and and how you've navigated to get to this point with 27 years experience. 
What I what I have to start by saying though is I can't promise to be as thrilling as Johnny Wilkinson or indeed Paul Nichols. Um, but hopefully, even if just one of you listening um takes something away from today, then I will be my job will be done. So no thanks. So I um did train as a nurse um uh, in the NHS. Gosh, in 1996, um I trained as a mental health nurse and I did my training in what in those days was a very frightening um, Victorian asylum. So I spent um, the sort of last part of my teenage years uh, exposed to people that have been institutionalised for many, many years. And um, gladly, things have moved on and we don't now um, have those Victorian institutions. But um, suffice to say, after a few years in the NHS, I then decided that I needed a bit of discipline, Jeremy. Um, Well, in fact, I didn't decide that. People decided that for me. So having spent about four or five years in the NHS, I thought I might um, do a bit of military service. But uh, I think somebody said I'd last about 10 minutes um, in the army, but here I am 27 years later. So yeah, I joined as a qualified mental health practitioner and principally uh, over the 27 years, I have been working clinically, um, still with uh, service personnel that have been suffering you know, varying degrees of intense emotional and psychological distress. Uh, latterly in the last few years, I've moved um, mainly away from clinical delivery and I'm now in the sort of policy space, but but still very much um, engaged with workplace well-being and ensuring that people are fit to uh, to do the jobs that we need them to do. So I'm sure you've seen lots of different, um, you know, pressure points and different areas of the military over those years. Can you give us a, don't obviously can't break any confidentiality, but can you give us a quick snapshot of the kind of things that you've had to deal with and see and the kind of people that you've had to help through that period? Sure. So um, we have um, exceptionally good in-service provision for our military personnel. And as I said, I've spent most of my career so far working clinically, managing those services. Um, And in terms of the range of sort of human suffering, um, you will uh, sort of not be surprised to learn that sort of, you know, I I deal with anything from the the sort of relationship breakup trauma, which can be exceedingly traumatic um, for those of of you listening that have been there, um, through to uh, a smaller incidence of of post-traumatic stress disorder related to operational deployments. Um, Actually, the incidence is is very small. We, we, We tend to work much more in the sort of well-being space where people are affected um, mostly by life and its complications uh, and its unpredictability. So so anything really, as I say, sort of um, on the spectrum from everyday stress and strain, either related to work or not, to relationship breakups through to um, uh, quite severe pathology uh, around traumatic experiences. Sure. So you you're interested in the way you worded that that it's much more proactive because i think we've got this interesting um you know perception of what mental health is when we talk about mental health and it's mental health awareness day everyone starts talking about depression and suicide which are clearly part of that very long and nuanced continuum but how would you define mental health So I think it's a really good question, Jeremy, because I think and I I have these conversations frequently around terminology and language and and how terminology itself can be quite stigmatizing. I think we talk about strength and courage when when uh, we we sort of um, have conversations around asking for help. But actually, for somebody who might be struggling, if, if they're feeling they have a perception that perhaps not asking for help equals not being courageous. We have to be really, really careful. So yes, I think terminology is is really important. And and certainly it's something that we get very right in the army to make sure, or in the military, I should say, to make sure that people's understanding of of what we're 
talking about is is crystal clear. So I think in terms of mental health and well-being generally, it we do exist. We 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 live our lives on a spectrum of of having those bad days, which are influenced informed by everyday events, um, be they relationship conflicts, um, difficulties in the workplace, financial uh, concerns um, is is affecting more and more people right now, Uh, through to more severe traumatic childhood adversity, um, you know, sort of trauma related to road traffic accidents, you know, loss of of loved ones through, through illness. But in terms of mental health and well-being, I think, you know, it's very subjective. It really relies on us all individually to determine where we think we are on that spectrum at any given time. Of course, when we are um, unable to function uh, well uh, and we may be straying into the territory of illness, then then obviously professional uh, intervention is required. But I think that we do tend to get a little bit confused around the use of language with this stuff because we are all um, uh, affected by mental health and well-being um, on a daily basis, just as we are with physical health and well-being. Um, and certainly I, I would like to live in a world where, where mental health is, is measured in exactly the same way as physical health. And in terms of our um, asking for help for our mental health and well-being, it is on you know, sort of a par with, with physical health. I'm not, I'm not sure that we're quite there yet, but we're definitely moving in the right direction, both across society and, and in, in my organisation, uh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, often... obviously the mental health is the hardest thing to measure because it's what's going on in somebody's mind whereas you know heart rate or bicep strength can be measured in a a routine fitness uh, or medical exam so for us for anyone listening what kind of symptoms do you see when people are starting to experience a slide or a you know a decrease in their mental health what kind of physical or social um, or psychological elements do do should we be looking out for? So I think I think there are many, and again, it will depend entirely on the intensity of the experience that the individual is going through. But I think anything that is not normal for that individual, and this is why I um, impress uh, constantly on on leaders, managers, teams friends to ensure that you are looking after your people by knowing them and and investing the time to get to know them so that you know what is normal for them because of course what's normal for me Jeremy could be very different to what's normal for for you in terms of my daily functioning Um, and and I use an example it's probably a poor example but I'll use it anyway if somebody who you know likes to maybe have um, a glass of red wine um, most evenings or at weekends and you have a social event with them and they're, they're not drinking that, you know, and there's no particular reason. They just say, well, I, you know, I, 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 I you know, sort of, I've gone off the taste or I've stopped using alcohol. I use this example because it's illustrative of so many things, because we know that alcohol can be um, quite a threat when people are suffering emotional and, and mental health problems. Um, but but actually, you might want to be inquiring what's going on and looking beyond what's being said, because actually for that person at that, that time in their life, it's quite normal for them to want to have a glass of red wine on a routine basis. And then all of a sudden they stop. And so, so we sort of maybe need to look beyond what's being said or what's being presented to us. Um, either through friends, indeed family, and, and definitely in the workplace, where, where people are starting to behave in a way that's not particularly routine or normal for them. Um, certainly in respect of social interaction and social contacts, if people are starting to withdraw at a time when they perhaps routinely wouldn't, you know, they'd be quite sociable and quite chatty. This is quite a 
common behavior where people are feeling that their contribution socially um, uh, and to society is maybe um, not quite as, as valuable as it might have been previously, that could definitely be a symptom of a lowering mood state. Um, and, and their self-confidence starts to be affected also. So there's a whole range of behaviours and, and, and symptoms that one could be looking out for. But I think that critically, it's about truly knowing your people. Uh, that's assuming we're talking about a workplace example. But also um, taking the time and protecting the time to, to, to really understand the person's frame of reference, what's really going on for them. And of course, in this world where time is so precious, it's very easy, um, and, and I was having this conversation with some senior leaders yesterday, it's very easy to take on face value what people are telling you, whether they're colleagues, they're your team, your, your, your loved ones. And if you get a sense that something's not quite right, and you ask them how they're feeling and they say, no, everything's fine. Maybe just um, ask again and maybe look beyond what they're saying to you, because, you know, often what they're what they're concealing is, is not truly what's going on. It's a really interesting point because we live in a frenetic world, don't we, where there's so many, you know, deliverables, so many projects, so many deadlines. And they tend to become because people are shouting and there's a sort of physical timeline or an outcome linked to those that they get the loudest volume but that point that you made almost you know this this human detective this person who's looking for the uh the human side and and rather than this sort of shallow transactional fast style of communication we're actually trying to slow down go a bit deeper and be very much more human uh, i remember speaking to somebody um, we were talking about emotions and how you can start these conversations. And they said, well, um, you know, it's very easy to ask people, oh, you know, how are you? Uh, and it sort of walked down the corridor. How are you? And it's like, yeah, yeah, I'm good, mate. How are you? Blah, blah, blah. And it's all quite shallow and you move on. But to your point there, even just by adding one word, you know, how are you feeling is is very different. How are you feeling is a very different question to how are you that you can just We've almost got that sort of Pavlovian response to go, yeah, yeah, I'm fine, thanks. Yeah. But just that ability to slow down and care about people as much yeah. as we care about the results, because without the people, we can't get the results. Yet the results on a spreadsheet or a you know, share price or whatever tend to shout loudest. So do you think one of the challenges for us is that so much of our identity is wrapped up in what we do in our work? Do you think that sort of clouds a lot of this sensitivity around how we're operating as as human performers if you like i think so absolutely and of course there, there's no better example than in the military because i don't have my uniform on today but i i would normally have my uniform on and so it's it's very easy to hide behind that uniform isn't it because everybody looks the same um virtually when male and female but we've got the same uniform on and we speak the same language and what i didn't say is this is probably the first um civilian audience that i purely civilian audience i've i've spoken to so thank you for listening to me it's really exciting for me um but yeah absolutely and and of course we are totally um task focus or you know we're, we're focusing on the results on the tasks of the day and 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 actually in fairness um you know we, we don't go to to work to um to sort of find ourselves it's part of finding ourselves and it's part of maintaining ourselves and in terms of maslow's hierarchy of needs having a fulfilling and enriching 
job or, or career is extremely important in, in the scale of our lives. But but actually, you're completely right. And, and um, I think going back, though, to the previous point about sort of revealing what's really going on for us, I mean, we, we have to accept also that that. For, for so many reasons, uh, some of us just aren't very good at talking about how we're feeling. And, you know, that could be due to one's gender. We know that blokes aren't very good. Hello, Anne-Maria. Uh, nice to, to hear from you. You're ex-military. Great. Um, but but yeah, I mean, blokes as a gender, that's not a sexist comment. That's a fact that they're just not very good at revealing how they're feeling. And, and often I think that's because they, they, they can't articulate how they're feeling. How many times have any men listening had women saying to you, you've got to tell me how you feel. You've got to tell me how you feel I don't know how I feel and therefore I can't articulate to you how you feel conversely and and there are cultural barriers to talking as well I work with a lot of Nepalese um soldiers who, who don't talk about how they feel um and so we've got to learn to understand the ways in which they do that those feelings do manifest but also we've got to be willing to listen and you've you've already made the point that you know it's very easy to have that corridor chat isn't it you know how are you doing and before you've actually said I'm really not good that person's either talking about themselves or they've moved on down the corridor because they're not really interested in hearing how you are because they're too busy, they're too focused on themselves. And, and so we've got to be better at this because um, I think that actually if you invest the time to ask somebody how they're truly feeling, you'd be surprised with sometimes what you're hearing from them. And, and, and of course, critically, it's what you do next, isn't it? Yeah, and I guess if, if we can help people to, you know, decompress or untangle something that's going on in their lives or that is in their mind they'll be better at work anyway so that you know 20 minutes half an hour discussion might actually help them to accelerate whereas they might just have been you know coasting through the day so so it is the right thing I mean I, I supported a you know a couple of top international sports organizations with their uh, psychology and and one of the uh support structures that was in place was sort of um, a support team if you like that would get together every week if we were away on tour or in camp and it might be the chef the bus driver a masseur a physio psychologist uh, lady that does the tickets or the sort of administration and that group would sit together once a week and we'd almost go down the playing roster and, and all the support staff and sort of talk through how's everyone getting on because it may be that such and such has been a bit grumpy in the physio's room and they overheard a conversation with this person's partner and that was then heard by the person doing the tickets and when they got on the bus they were grumpy and shouted at somebody else. And it's these tiny data points that can all build a bit bigger picture when you're curious and sort of open to it about how is everyone really feeling, how are they operating, how is the stress affecting them. And you're absolutely spot on, you know, having been in some sports teams going through to World Cups or finals or whatever it might be. Some people start being, you know, the great joke teller that they've never been before, you know, hyperactive with nerves. Other people who are usually quite buoyant and effervescent retreat and go very quiet. And and it is it's those shifts in patterns that we've got to be sensitive to um, and make sure that there's an environment where people feel comfortable but it's not something where the wheels have to come off before we can talk I think that very proactive way of having the human conversation as well as the performance conversation is probably what we're aiming for isn't it 
It really is. And I think, you know, it, it doesn't require a specialist. I mean, what I what I haven't gone into detail about is my training. And, you know, I've, I've done a sort of uh, degree in psychology when I was serving in Northern Ireland. I, I, I did a degree in psychological interventions. I, I've done lots and lots of training. But my point is, this shouldn't require a specialist intervention. This is just about being kind to each other and putting ourselves in the shoes of that individual who's sitting in front of us and, and being um, empathic. And, and that, that takes time. And I, I truly believe, Jeremy, that the part of the problem that we're seeing now, both across the executive space and, and, and in any organisational setting, is not protecting the time to prioritise this stuff. And, and, you know, there are lots of ways we can do this. And, and we have lots of great initiatives in my organization and I've been speaking to um, other organizations in the civilian sector and, and other public services to look at what they're doing in order to enable this opportunity and provide the protected time and space for people to have those well-being conversations um, and, and if we need to start doing things a slightly differently I'm using the example now of coaching for example a lot of a lot of um, uh, executives in the corporate world will use coaching to good effect well let's just have a look at how we're doing that and maybe focus, yes, of course, on performance and productivity, but part of that has to be about how you're, you, you are within yourself. And we do this very well, I think, with medical practitioners, with medical professionals, doctors and nurses. We have to be on top of our game because if we're not, we could kill somebody. I mean, that's the bottom line. So, so therefore, I think that we just need to slightly change the narrative around what, what this looks like and actually getting the basics right before we start overcomplicating and over intellectualizing in order to get to the end end point so let, let's stay up at that organizational level then the you know you said you've looked around obviously the military context um which is vast and then there are other organizations you've been studying or, or supporting what kind of organizational level resources and support mechanisms can leaders and and organizations put in place to move away from just this you know, one day a year that's International Men Mental Health Day and we have a couple of webinars and, and then we move on. What, what are the systems and support networks can they put into place? Well, again, there, there are many. And I think what one has to do is sort of consider the context in, in which people are operating. And so I think I've already mentioned this sort of culture of toughness that prevails in, in, in some organisations. Let's say the police, for example. There's a good reason why that is. These, these, these people are running into danger every day. And so therefore, you know, there is a requirement for, for people to have that level of mental robustness and, and, and sort of toughness in order to be able to do that. But actually, again, they, they have a really good I, I'm not in the police but I, having spoken to them many times over the years I know they have a brilliant setup um, where they, they have their in-service provision too but also um, recognize that there is a time and, and a requirement to actually stop and look at how those experiences might be affecting the individual functioning team functioning leadership functioning but what we also know whether we're looking at the police or the military or you know a sort of a, a banking organization that actually this has to start at the top there has to be um leadership by example from, from the most senior the position of most seniority so so um you know in terms of strategic prioritization of this stuff it's key because actually what we know is that that sickness absence through burnout workplace conflict interpersonal conflict with colleagues, um, low mood and anxiety related to workplace pressure, burnout, I think I've mentioned, is costing, you know, billions of pounds a year in terms of sort of loss of productivity, turnover of staff. Um, 
uh, sickness absence for, for sort of um, permanent employees. It's a huge thing. And, and so we've got to do what we can with the resources and time and um, skill that we have available. But we need to start with the basics. And, and that is about putting ourselves in the position of our people um, or our friends and loved ones and saying, you know, what can I do to make this a better experience for you? Um, and certainly in the business of um, workplace well-being, we must create conditions in which everybody thrives. I think Stephen, um, who's the guy on Dragon Den? Stephen. So he talks a lot about this, doesn't he? You know, so I don't really care what my people do, how they behave, as long as they deliver. That's fine. But actually, when you are working in specific organisations doing specific things like the military, we can't have people doing what they want to do all of the time. But what we can do is respect their need for um, uh, 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 well-being uh, initiatives to be delivered um, for them in, in the workplace. And, and that right, um, it, you know, remains ac across the board wherever you're working. So, yeah, um, a lot of organisations these days have in-service provision with employee assistance programmes. Um, there are lots and lots of me mental health and well-being apps now. Um, yours, I guess, is one of them. But, you know, uh, meditation-based apps, Headspace, um, we have one called HeadFit in the military that um, the employees can access. Um, but uh, there are lots of different initiatives. But of course, what we must recognise is not one size fits all. We're all different and we all are um, exposed to different stressors. We all have different levels of resilience. We all respond to um, often the same thing in very different ways. And so, you know, we have to recognise that actually what is what is common is the way that we function as teams and the framework in which we we sort of deliver our business. And so, you know, if you are a leader and you are managing teams of people, it's about leading with humility and compassion and, and recognising that if you want people to come to work and deliver for you, you've got to be nice to them. You know, that's not to suggest that you have to respond to every sort of demand that they place on you for flexible working, time off here, time off there. You know, um, uh, I was going to say rent increases, but I mean, you know, sort of salary increases. But but it's really about just being um, sensible and, and putting yourself in, in their perspective. And what is it that would motivate me to come to work? Well, actually, you know, just people treating me really kindly. And um, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the police. We had a, a chief police, Ash Farrington, on on the um, one of the events, and he was talking about being the first respondent, you know, to murder scenes, to road traffic accidents, some horrific sites, pretty much, you know, as part of his daily work. And he was an incredibly empathic and caring leader. And the way he talked about it was there was almost no filter because he was so emotionally connected with his team that made him a great leader and a great coach to his people. But it also left him exposed to the emotions of grieving people or, you know, people that were in shock. And every day that almost had this um, sort of toxic effect on him. And he, he likened it to asbestosis, you know, that you would always wear a mask and be, you know, be very careful when you're dealing with asbestos because it can get into your lungs. And he was yeah. saying it was the same for him on a daily basis. He was exposed to these emotions all the time. And it eventually caught up with him and he had, you know, burnout and had to say, take some time out. But what can we do as individuals to notice the warning signs we've sort of spoken a little bit about looking out for other people and being a great leader what kind of things you know in terms of self-talk or triggers what kind of traps have you noticed in the way people are thinking or talking to themselves that 
we really should be seen as as red lights in our own mental health. Yeah, can I just go back to that previous point first, though, because I think it's a really important one, given um, uh, what's happening globally at the moment um, in terms of vicarious trauma and, and putting oneself in that position um, uh, occupationally, because that that's your your uh, that's your responsibility to make sure that you are sort of absorbing other people's trauma. But I think what what we can and must do is make sure that we are not unnecessarily exposing ourselves to trauma, uh, trauma and of course what we know is that there is a sort of degree of uh, curious morbidity in all of us or, or morbid curiosity that's the one in all of us and so therefore you know it's like driving past a road traffic accident on the m1 if you see there's been an rta you know the tendency naturally is to look and see what's going on and and and, and actually if, if what you saw was really grim and, and somebody had died um and and it was pretty gory and nasty um that that's likely to stay with you and i think certainly i found myself just a couple of evenings ago having turned the laptop off and turning the news on i actually had to turn the news off again because the the, the reporting was so graphic um the journalism around um what's happening uh in in gaza was just too graphic and i thought well actually why would i force myself to watch something that is likely to impact on me you know seeing babies in body bags that's not a good sight for anybody so, so moving on to your question, sorry, Jeremy, I think it starts with that that position of responsibility, personal responsibility and, and self-discipline and, and recognising what it is that makes you tick, what it is that, 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 that prevents you from ticking and operating, but, but, but absolutely essentially making sure that, that, that we are sort of, again, leading by example at an individual level and doing the very basic things that, that often get forgotten when life is particularly busy. So things like making sure you've got really good sleep hygiene and routines, making sure that you're stopping and having lunch and, and making sure you're fueling your body. And, you know, I, I, I don't know who's listening on the call, but, you know, I'm not a performance coach and I, I've never worked with professional athletes. But the bottom line is we all need to eat. We need to sleep. And we need to, I think, um, remain uh, or retain perspective. Perspective is key in life. Um, and, and of course, uh, again, I'll use an example of when somebody dies suddenly and, and you sort of find yourself saying, gosh, life is so short. I've got to do things differently. I've got to slow down. I've got to spend more time with my loved ones. And you might do that for one or two weeks. But then, of course, we all get sort of... Um, drawn up in the sort of craziness of, of the pace of life. So I think absolutely recognising um, your own capabilities and, and recognising what it is that, that bothers you in life and, and trying to avoid that stuff. But but also in respect of, um, you know, basic things, maybe looking at what we're doing, be it in our workplace, you know, is this job actually, you know, not good for me any longer? And I've had those conversations with people in the course of my clinical practice, you know, people that have been in, in the military a long, long time and, and suddenly realising that perhaps they've sort of grown away from, from what that, that organisation can offer. And likewise, in personal relationships, you know, how many people stay in personal relationships that, you know, the evidence is that it's probably quite damaging for them. But we do it anyway, because the alternative is quite frightening. So, so I suppose that's a sort of long way of saying we need to begin with the basics. And that's looking at ourselves in the mirror saying, you know, how am I living my life? Is this good? Is this sustainable? You know, am I looking after myself physically, mentally, socially um, and emotionally? I think this is one of the areas why it's so difficult to spot because it's almost like a cycle, isn't it? That goes round, you know, we've got, mm -hmm. you know, hydration, nutrition, we've got sleep, 
We've got the thoughts in our head, the way we set ourselves goals and tick off some tasks that might give us a feeling of worth and confidence, uh, comparing ourselves to other people through the day. Then there might be alcohol involved or some exercise involved in a social gathering. And there are all these tiny fragments, really, which can join up to either give you a positive spiral up towards better mental health or a more negative spiral down towards worse mental health. And I think because they're such tiny choices, they aggregate through time. And that's why, you know, hearing you talk about, oh, it's just those basics. It's making sure you've eaten, making sure you've slept. But I know personally, I'm a very different person if I've not eaten and slept or, you know, hydrated because you, you, you're you in crisis mode, in effect. And then you might have an argument because you've worded something badly. And then you ruminating about, you know, what you might have said and how you've said it. And before you know it, you're taking up a lot of your brain energy with something that was a mistake that came from another knock on choice. So that but I think this is why. So, sorry, Jeremy, I was just going to say this is precisely the reason why being able, feeling able to talk to another human being makes such such a difference and, and can be exceedingly powerful because it's about uh, altering perspective, gaining perspective if one has lost perspective. Um, and, and this doesn't need to be a sort of healthcare professional or you know private therapist. People spend thousands of pounds seeking private therapy just to gain perspective. Um, and that's fine. I'm not criticising that approach, but, but, but actually just by talking to another person who's either going through the same um, experience or indeed has recovered from a, a similar experience Experience, whether it be sort of you know grieving for a loved one or workplace um, stress and strain or something more sort of uh, complicated, it's absolutely key to, to just feel able to talk to somebody to get that reassurance to normalise how you're feeling. Normalisation is 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 critical in life. I think it's very easy to to become overwhelmed with our emotions, feeling that what we're going through is the first lived experience of its kind. When in fact, if you start talking to other people, they'll say, well, no, you know, when I lost my mother or brother or sister through death, my God, you know, it took me a year to recover and I'm still not the same. Or, you know, when I was having that tricky experience in the workplace, um, I felt this and uh so no absolutely critical to to reach out but but as I said earlier what we know is that that's not so easy for everybody to do just as you're talking I'm almost imagining four steps that are you know one is that ability to connect with somebody who's a trained professional that can actually help you really with a, a top skill to restructure the way you think that's sort of level four level three is that ability to speak to somebody, a caring friend or a colleague that can get these concerns and these worries out of your head and restructure it objectively. Because as you've said, when, when we're catastrophizing and when we're caught in that isolated space of sitting on our own, in our own dark cave, because we don't feel like we've got the energy for it, the only voice that we hear is our own. And we start to believe that our thoughts are actually the truth when they're not at all. They're just a negative opinion and part of the way our brain is built is to keep us safe so no surprise that it's telling us not to do this or not to do that or we shouldn't have done this because it really just wants us to be you know in that comfort zone all the time so level four is speaking to a skilled professional level three is speaking to a friend and letting them ask you questions and say well were there any options at that point you know what could you have done at that point because in your internal spiral, there was no other option. This was the only way to go. So I think that's really helpful. And then the 
the second one is, I think, about writing things down. And this is another really powerful technique, um, you know, because while our thoughts are in our head, they're just a complete mess. They're a complete tangle. But when we force ourselves to write sentences down or write some bullet points down or just write things down, we have to structure them in some way. We have to articulate them in a sequence that makes sense. And I think just that ability to take the mess and put it into a list actually starts that process for you to look at it because there it exists in black and white. And you often hear people saying, I can't sleep at night because I'm worried about this thing. And I think if you can write something down before you go to bed and say, these are the four things I need to do when I wake up in the morning. These are the things I'm concerned about. These are the people I need to speak to, or these are the actions or decisions I need to make. That can make you feel like, okay, I've got half a plan. I don't know how that plan is going to go tomorrow, but at least I've got a plan. The worst case scenario is sitting on our own in the dark, letting these negative thoughts just spiral and spiral. And then I guess the final option, which I'd love your advice on any techniques that you've learned, is how do we challenge ourselves to say that's not true? Because, you know, I, I worked with a, a, a cricketer, for example, once that was a bowler. And that I asked him to talk out loud as I was coaching him about how he was, you know, going through his action and we were training in the nets. And this guy spoke to himself worse than you would speak to any, you know, feral animal. Um, and that's the way he spoke to himself all the time. You know, maybe it was a parent or a young coach when he was, you know, growing up or whatever. But this negative critic that that's not good enough, you're rubbish, you're going to be, you're going to let your team down. That whole burden of having that negative critic on our shoulder all the time is soul destroying. And it's no surprise that people can't, you know, get any energy back from that. So if, if you think about those four levels of the, the expert helper, you know, the, the compassionate friend, the journal to restructure your thinking, and then that final one about, okay, we are on our own. We're not going to write things down. We need to restructure in our heads. What kind of strategies and, and self-talk uh, rules and, and tips have you got for people to try and challenge their own thinking rather than just believe this negative spiral? But I, yeah, absolutely. But I think just just summarizing all of that from my position, it's about having the insight and awareness to recognize and and the self belief and the self love and compassion to recognize that you matter. Because otherwise, you get to that point of irreparable damage sometimes, where it's very hard to come back from where you have a sort of reached catastrophe point. And actually all of those strategies that you eloquently described there um, are completely irrelevant because you're so totally broken at that point. So it's really about, again, going back to having the sort of level of self-insight and awareness, knowing yourself, loving yourself enough to prioritize yourself, recognizing the requirement for you to be fit for purpose as a leader, as a husband, a mother, all of those things that matter in our lives um, or should matter. Um, and, and, and then recognizing what it is that you need or that we need to do in order to make us the best version of, of, of ourselves. But that has to start with recognizing ourselves as a priority. And I think this is often where we see leadership going horribly wrong, because as you said, with the example of, of, of the, the, the guy from the police, it's very 
easy to get consumed in the sort of madness and pace of, of life at work or in the family. Um, and, and we have to retain objectivity and, and take a step back and say, what, what is my position in all of this and how do I maintain my own um, functioning and well-being? It's, it's critical. So, um, yeah, absolutely. Um, but it has to start with prioritization of yourself and, and utilizing all of those basic strategies, making sure you're sleeping enough, making sure you're leading by example in terms of your actions and words and being kind to others, being kind to yourself and exercising that self-compassion. Now, I speak to I speak to tough army blokes about this stuff and they get it. They get it because they recognize, because they're bright, they're driven. They want to be the best version of themselves. So if they have somebody like me, especially saying that you've got to be kinder to yourself and you've got to take time at lunchtime to go for a run and make sure you eat and you, you know, make sure at night you're turning your laptop off by a certain time and you're not getting up and working until another certain time. People will listen because, you know, they want to be the best version of them themselves. So so I think in terms of turning on the sort of self-love and, and prioritization of self, we, we just have to do it. We have to be willing to put ourselves in that often quite frightening space because, you know, sometimes um, that that's a terrifying position to think, well, actually, I matter more than you know my people at work. And I think I used the example earlier of um, some work I was doing on a leadership study day yesterday where. People were asked, there about 50 of us doing it, people asked what it, what it was that they were responsible for and to whom. And the majority of people there, I would say 95% of the people responded with a sort of almost natural response, i.e. I'm responsible to my stakeholders, um, to my CEO, to my, my teams, um, and, and their families and their loved ones were sort of number four or five on the list. Uh, I mean, I was very different because I do, I absolutely put my, my daughter at number one. But, but for a lot of people, we get swept up in this notion that we don't really matter as much is what happens in the workplace that 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 needs to change we need to turn that around and recognize that for us to be the best version of ourselves either in our personal and our professional lives we've got to be functioning to to our best and it's the same in the sports world isn't it yeah and, and i think we spend so much of our time looking outside mm-hmm. you know, we spend so much of our time and there are i dread to think how many um, you know, neuroscientists and social scientists and psychologists at these technology businesses trying to make the social media feeds addictive. They do a pretty good job. Um, but we're always looking at what everybody else is doing and, and having that comparison and even loading up the images and reading the titles is exhausting yeah. mentally to have these things flashing in front of your eye, eyes for an hour. But yeah. then you add to that the context of what have they got? What are they doing? Why do they look so beautiful? Why Why is their yacht bigger than mine or whatever it might be, you know? Yeah. And this crazy comparison that it's almost made this initiative of self-care seem selfish. Yeah, exactly. And we've got to change that narrative, Jeremy. And I think that absolutely going back to what I was saying about the basic things, knowing what it is that that makes you sad and make makes you angry and and, and avoiding those things where you can and 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 particularly avoiding those things when you're in a period of vulnerability because you're fatigued because work has been particularly brutal um or you're going through the you know and or sort of enduring the ending of a significant relationship and or worrying about you know some bill that's come in for for whatever um so so absolutely recognizing your areas of vulnerability and ensuring that during those times particularly you uh you 
you exercise self-care by, by implementing those basics, but but also recognizing the need to retain perspective or change perspective, which, as I said, you can often only get by talking to to to, to somebody else. But but actually, the power of Google is is very very um it can be life-changing and I say when I'm doing my sort of sessions in my organization if you're sitting on a Saturday night feeling really sad and drunk and you know things aren't going right just google how you're feeling because there will be one other person in the world somewhere that's feeling the way that you're has felt the way you are that can provide that reassurance um and normalization that that you're not going nuts it's just the situation you find yourself in at the time but absolutely about sort of self-discipline and recognizing that that you matter that's all fascinating. Let, let's take a couple of questions from the group. Has anyone got any questions for Susie that's been listening in so far? Um, focusing on personal growth, what was the defining moment in your early career that made you realise that you had made the right decision to transition from the NHS to the military? That's from Justin. Uh, hi, Justin. Um, so I think as, as obvious as I sort of made it at the beginning of my little session was I, I I was going off the rails a bit. I was very successful at work, but I wasn't particularly successful in my personal life. I was coming out of a, a bad marriage and um, and somebody said, why don't you just try it? You know, you probably fit in well um, in, in the military. And another said, no, she won't. She'll last 10 minutes because she won't be able to keep her mouth shut. So there was the challenge. I thought I will prove to you that I um, I can keep my mouth shut for 10 minutes. And it was tough. It was really tough going through basic training and then later at Sandhurst. But but, you know, as with anything in life, you know, each challenge became bigger and bigger. And every every time I overcame the challenge of being quiet when I really wanted to shout and say this is rubbish or, you know, being out on exercise and doing really unpleasant things um, because I had to. Uh, it, it just sort of became a, a, a self-fulfilling um, means to an end. And 27 years later, I wouldn't do anything else. I, I would go back and do it all over in a heartbeat. Um, but I suppose uh, what I didn't say at the beginning is that in terms of my energy and enthusiasm for, for this space, clearly I'm professionally um, very engaged in, in, in mental health and well-being, particularly mental health and well-being in the workspace. But I, I've also been in a position of being completely burnt out, you know, in that space where you're trying to do the best for everybody, um, despite the significant challenges and lack of resourcing and time and morally feeling that you're not quite doing what you ought to be doing but you have to do it that way because that's all the resource you have to deliver um and and yeah getting to the point where I thought I, I can't do this anymore because I'm not sleeping at night knowing that I I could be doing more if I have more resource and I think that, that that's a key point to make as well in terms of our core values in life you know I, I don't know any of you listening and I don't know what age you are but I think with maturity comes this complete commitment to our core values and 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 I said yesterday at this leadership event, you know, I sort of sleep at night knowing that I may well have not been able to solve every problem, but I sleep at night knowing I've done my very best. And that sounds very self-indulgent, but it's true. And I think um, and I think we should all sort of live by those core values that we will have um inherited from our sort of parents and our our, our childhoods. But but what what really makes us tick and what what do we really care about in life? And for me, it's about honesty and integrity and doing the right thing at all times. Um, so so I think that's a, a key point as well. Great. Any other questions from the group? Feel free to open your mics and cameras if you'd rather ask it rather than type it. Hi, thanks both. Um, I'm a pharmacist, Susie, by by day in the NHS. And I'm just wondering whether where do you stand on the use of 
medication? Do you think that we're we've got it just about right, or we're too slow with it, or we're too quick to jump to a therapeutic decision to prescribe? Yeah, that's a really good but controversial point, isn't it? I think um, uh, psychotropic medication um, is is absolutely key for for people that are uh, whose functioning and and quality of life is is being affected by their their mental health needs. However, what we know about mental health services um, across the, the the globe is that they're under pressure and um, uh, demand is outstripping resource. And so I think that GPs have had a tendency in their quest to do something and to try and make that individual feel better, that there has been a tendency to to uh, prescribe, um, you know, sort of uh, SSRIs in, in a hurry um, because there's such a wait for therapy. But for some people, that's actually been life life saving, and 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 so therefore it can only be a good thing. But it, it is a bit of um, a controversial area, and and I have my own thoughts, which I probably ought to keep to myself. But I think it can can be a good thing. But for others, it's it's not the answer. And actually, I think I, I saw something in the press last week around um, yet again the sort of prescription of of exercise as opposed to antidepressant medication. Now, the thing with that is that exercise doesn't work for everybody. Some people can't exercise. Some people are ill or injured, and and they they can't use physical exercise as as a method of coping with with low mood or anxiety or both. And so again, we have to just be very careful about sort of you know the messaging. Uh, that we use um, because we can by using the wrong language and messaging we can completely alienate one cohort of, of, of people who are saying what about me you know I, I've broken my leg or in fact I don't have any legs what about me when when the life is is is, is difficult so um yeah it's, it's a tricky one Jamie but good question I don't have a, a perfect answer I'm afraid Good stuff. Thank you. Um, well, we're getting towards the end of time. I hope people have really enjoyed this session. I've just got one final question, Susie. And if it's if you were going to get a T-shirt made with a slogan on the front to help people with their mental health or one sort of succinct point that you'd want people to take away, what would that be? Be kind is just a little bit too out there now. Everybody's talking about being kind, but that would be my sort of strap line is just be kind, work hard and be kind. And this is something that I have been continually saying to my daughter for the last 18 years, work hard and be kind to people. Yeah, that, that's it, I think. Brilliant. And uh, I just want to say a massive thank you to you for your time today. I know you've awesome. had a great, great career in the military and are going to go on to do brilliant things, whatever you choose next um and i'm sure i speak on behalf of everyone for a really good hour and good insight into your experiences and and tips so thank you so much susie and thanks everyone for joining us and um yeah we'll uh, see you soon in the membership thanks very much thanks everybody take care well i hope you enjoyed that session and that it's inspired you to make those small changes needed to put your mental well-being first I also hope that it's acted as a reminder to look out for the people around us before the performance, because without their energy, creativity and teamwork, we'll never achieve success. If I can help in any way with keynotes, webinars or digital content to support your organisation's mindset or performance, then just drop me a note through to hello at sportingedge.com. We've always been told to soldier on, but after today's session, I hope you've had a chance to stop and reflect on what makes you happy, healthy and fulfilled. Good luck and we'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Mind of Champions. 
Connect with Jeremy's LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram links in today's show notes to receive the latest insights from his work. If you'd like to get access to Sporting Edge's digital library or book Jeremy for a conference speech or webinar, then please visit www.sportingedge.com or email hello at sportingedge.com.